Okay, we started last week a new series in 1 Corinthians. We're working our way through this book of 1 Corinthians. And last week we came up with a question as part of this, how do you run a church? How do we run a church? And that's the question we're looking at as we work our way through the book of Corinth, because they've got some problems, and that's why Paul's writing the letter. They've got some difficulties and things that are going on there. Paul's going to straighten them out. And of course, one of the reasons is because they never heard of church, never had a church. They were from Corinth, is in Greece, in a city where the whole place worshiped idols. And suddenly Paul comes and they found a church there. And whose example do you follow? There isn't any. No example to follow. We have a distinct advantage because we have many examples that we follow. And that's exactly what we do. We follow good examples. And that's how we know what to do. And they had none of that. And so as they did things that they thought were okay, uh, they ran into some problems. And the number one problem that Paul brought up uh, was uh, they argue and they divide. Always argue and divide. That's the number one uh, problem that he first brought up as he's beginning to answer the questions that they have. And uh, he says, I heard this about you. They didn't write them and say, hey, we're having this argument. <laughs> you know, no, I heard about what you're doing, and I told you you cannot do that. And we say, okay, don't do it. Well, that's maybe easier said than done, right? Don't do it. Well, he's going to fix that tonight. <laughs> he's going to nail that coffin shut tonight. Uh, because we just throw up our hands, well, don't do it. How do we do what do we do? Well, he'll, he'll fix it. He'll help us understand. All right? And part of the beginning is, is he's telling us God's plan. And he's saying to us, humans could never have figured this out. It wasn't in the human way of thinking uh, to ever come up with such a plan as we have. It was God's wisdom. We never would have figured it out that way. And so he's saying that God is very wise and humans, the best wisdoms that humans have is foolishness in God's book. And he's convincing them of that. He's going to continue to convince them of that. But he talked about the humble beginnings, you know, uh, and Christianity is like that. It's very different. Uh, if you really understand it, it doesn't fit any pattern that we're used to. And we'll get into that as we go along. He said, it came from humble beginnings, fishermen, preachers. Uh, it comes from odd people. <laughs> not many mighty, not many fancy people, not many big shots in the church. And we look around, we see common people believe, and that's very much a part of the church. So that's really a little bit of last week's now we go on to chapter 2, pick up right where we left off in chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. He said, when I came to you, I didn't have a fancy way to say things. I didn't have clever words that I used. He said, I was declaring to you the testimony of God, verse 2, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And so, he says, when I first came to you and I walked into your little uh, group that we were going to start a church with, that when I got there, uh, 
I said things as plainly as I was able to say it. As a matter of fact, it says I was a little shaky. I was a little weak. I was a little uh, uh, trembling, he says. And my speech wasn't fancy at all. And uh, he said that wasn't what I came to do. My message was we're going to talk about Jesus and him crucified. And that was going to be the center of what I presented to you. I didn't come with fancy speech. And there's a reason for that, which he'll give us in a minute, but it's pretty interesting because here's a guy, if anybody could have used fancy speech, this guy. Go over to Romans chapter 8. You got one of the high points in the whole Bible. Now there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a sermon. You can preach a sermon on every verse, maybe half a dozen on every verse. It's spectacular writing. He had the ability to speak in very, very good ways. But he says, when I came there, my preaching was not that way. I didn't preach that way. As a matter of fact, I was kind of shy. This guy's not shy, okay? He's not shy. He goes to Greece and Athens, Greece, and he's walking around the town, and they got a, 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 a plaque there. Of course, they got all their gods, you know, all the gods that they worship. Zeus and Mercury and all the rest of them, idols all around. And then there's a plaque that says, to the unknown God. So they thought, well, in case we missed one, we got all our regulars, but if we missed one, just so that we don't get mad, we'll put one up to cover that. Well, he got a hold of that. And he said, I'll tell you who the unknown God is. Come here. Let me talk to you about the. He has a tremendously powerful mind. I've told you before, he's one of the great brains of all time. He's an absolute genius, understanding things. And what he says, when I got to Corinth, I did not use all that fancy speech. I came to you in a very simple, straightforward thing. And it's an interesting topic, I think. Uh, you know, when I speak, and I speak quite a bit, <laughs> when I preach a sermon, um, I think about it for a while, and then after Sunday, I think about it all week long, every time I'm awake, driving down the road, half asleep, wherever. I'm thinking, 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 reading, thinking, reading, thinking. And then finally, I sit down, and I write down, put all the thoughts on paper. And it takes three hours. I don't know why. It just takes me three hours to write a half-hour sermon. So I sit down, and three hours I write out how I think it ought to be, what I think I ought to say. And after thinking about it and rehearsing it in my mind and practicing it and going over and over, and I get, I'm going to get it on paper. And the point of putting it on paper is to correct it. And so after I write it for three hours, then I pick it up a little later, and I go through it, and I fix it. And then I sometimes fix it twice. You know, so you say, just maybe if I said that, if I changed that word, and so I always double space because I'm filling in between. Because you're trying to do the best you can do. You don't want to get up and preach that. Eh, I worked on it for a while. So this is, you know, no, I never want to say that. I want to get up and say this is the best I can do. I thought about it. I rehearsed it. I went over it in my mind. I wrote it down, and I corrected it twice. So here we go. My mother always taught me, fix your grammar. <laughs> fix your whatever. Fix it. And so, you know, I use those thoughts. Because you want to say it the best way you can. However, in that is a trap. Uh, it's very difficult uh, as you think about how do you make up a sermon. And there were things uh, that I used to hear 
growing up, and what I heard very early growing up was every sermon is supposed to have three points. So there was a three-point sermon. And uh, don't ask me where that idea came from, but for years and years and years, I heard three-point sermon ever since I was a little kid. And I used to hate three-point sermons because they'd preach for an hour, and they'd say, now, point number three, oh, no, here we go. And uh, it was, <laughs> stop, that's enough. We don't need number three today. But they had to do that, and so they thought they were preaching a good sermon if it had three points. And Search the Bible and see if anywhere it says you got to have three points. It was some man's idea. That's where it came from. Right? And so uh, humans come along and say, if you're going to preach a good sermon, this is what you got to do. Nowadays it's a little different. They kind of don't talk much about three points. But they do have their points. And they love to have, uh, for example, rhyming words. If we can make words that rhyme, wow, that's great. That's great preaching. So here's my first point. It rhymes with the second point. And they think, well, I'm really getting the language down today. The most common things today uh, that you hear almost everywhere is that every point has the same first letter. So, for example, we're going to talk about righteousness. Well, we will talk about the peace of righteousness. Then we'll talk about the prayer of righteousness. Then we'll talk about the purpose of righteousness. Then we talk about the problem. Everything's got to have a P. I remember sitting listening to a sermon, and he's going down through, and I'm thinking, just make the last one not rhyme. And I'd feel so much better, you know. But you're working so hard at that, and I don't know. I don't get it. I don't see that it makes a whole lot of purpose. I, and I think clever speech is something that's a trap. And Paul said, I specifically didn't use it. I wouldn't use it. I chose against it. Now, here's a guy who could have laid it out. He could get up and speak. And... It's just a strange thing. One of the new ideas today is we've got an outline for our sermon. We're going to put our outline on, a, on an overhead projector and shine our outline on the wall. The last time I was in a service where a guy had his outline, I'm thinking, you don't need to talk. It's right up there. You know? You're kind of annoying me. I can read what you say. And then he went off, and he didn't follow the outline. I said, oh inspiration finally inspiration and then he's oh wait a minute sorry my outline's out of order and he went back and there it all was again I mean uh, it's, it's they think it's better the best speaker that ever lived was Jesus Christ absolutely by far and away the best speaker of all times after all his name, one of the names he had, is the Word of God. Or he is the expression of the mind of God. Who can say it better? Nobody. Look in there. See if you can find a three-point sermon there. Right there. See if you can find words that rhyme. It's not there. Those things aren't used because he is just about here's what the truth is. I'll tell you the truth. And that's what Paul says, I'm coming to you, and I'm just going to tell you about Jesus. Yeah, we could get fancy and say things in a fancy way, make our words rhyme and the whole deal. Uh, but no, no, he says, I am going to come in very simple speech. And I think simple speech is a great thing. That's what Jesus did. You want to see what he did? Simple speech is what he did. And he kept it plain and people out there who were uh, not scribes and Pharisees, but people who were fishermen and uh, tax collectors and prostitutes understood him. And that's essential. A lot of times I throw out a word because I say, well, why would I use that word? I could talk about prevenient grace. You all know what that is? Does anybody care to know? 
You know, I mean, it's a nice thought, it's a good thought, but I mean, we can use language that nobody understands. Where, where are we then? So Paul says, I'm going to keep it as simple as I can. I'm not here for fancy preaching. I am here to tell you about Jesus Christ and the fact that he was crucified. And I'm going to tell you that over and over and over and over again. Now, he's going to tell us why he chose that. Anybody who was as capable as he was could have just stunned us with words. And, uh, and some of the places where he gets into that kind of preaching in the book of Ephesians, uh, I think Colossians shines too. Uh, you read it and you say, wow, he really has got a grasp of things and he knows how to use language but here he says he specifically didn't and he said matter of fact I kind of backed off as much as I could and they say he was very short the, the uh, explanations of him that exist say that he was a short little short man uh, not impressive in his person you know, some guy comes in and he's a big giant and he's impressive and he can brought a booming voice. That wasn't Paul, all right? As a matter of fact, uh, he even probably looked uh, kind of repulsive. They say he was bullied. Yeah, can't help that, I guess. Uh, but they also think that his eyes were bad. And because of uh, a disease he carried in his eyes, that's why everybody has to write down what he says because he can't see very good. And he's got runny, pussy eyes. So if you get somebody up that's preaching and his eyes are running, he's, nice, huh? Paul says, okay. I didn't come here to impress you as look at me, I'm Paul. I came here to tell you over and over again, I'll talk about Jesus and him crucified. Why? Verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So this is very important. So if Paul comes in and he uses fancy words and he says all kinds of wonderful things that rhyme and everything starts with a P. Okay? And he says all those things. We say, man, that guy must really know what he's talking about, so I'll believe it. Because he said it. Paul said, that's not what I want. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ and what he did and what happened to him. I want you to believe because of that. I want you to listen to the story of Jesus Christ, how he was born how he grew up, how he healed, and how he uh, was abused and, and despised and rejected. I'm going to tell you that story and how they nailed him to a cross and killed him. I want you to hear that story because I want you to believe not because I had a powerful wit and was able to convince you. I want you to believe in Jesus Christ because you say, you know, think of what Jesus did. Think of what he accomplished Think of how he lived. I believe because of that. So your faith, the reason you believe, is not because somebody said it in a nice fancy way, but just the plain true facts, this is what Jesus did. And I think myself, those are the most convincing things. That's why we speak from the four gospels half a year here because the most convincing information about Jesus is just here's what he did. Here's what he accomplished. Here's what happened. Here's what happened at the Last Supper. Here's what happened at his trial. Here's what happened at his crucifixion. The more we know about him, the more we can be convinced of who he is. And so we don't want our faith standing in the wisdom of men because some preacher got up and put on a, a show for us. It's not what we want. We want to know we believe in Jesus because just I heard the story and it convinced me. And so he says to them, you probably wondered, and they probably did because they had uh, a palace we mentioned last week, as one of the people who was there preaching. And he was known as one of the best preachers 
in the early church. He really knew how to preach. And so I'm sure he came and he sure sounded a lot better than Paul. Paul said, no. As a matter of fact, their problem was, problem number one, they argue and divide, what are they arguing over? Well, I like Paul. And the other guy said, no, I like Peter. The other guy said, no, I like uh, Apollos. The other guy said, well, me, I like Christ. And so they're arguing and fighting and arguing and fighting over that. And he says, you've got to stop arguing. It is the nature of people to divide. And overcoming that is what we need to be thinking about. We've got to learn how to stop arguing how to not divide. No, we'll go on. Verse 6. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, not of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he says, we speak Wisdom. What we're saying comes from God. God decided that He would send Jesus, and Jesus would come, and then He and that was the hidden wisdom. He says from the world, and people were those things were hidden. Those things were hidden, and so He didn't know those things. And He says the the rulers of this world. And I like the way He puts it. We speak, verse 6, wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to naught. He says, there are people in charge now, and he says, they're going to be nothing. Well, I would never, that's true about every person just about in the whole world that's in charge somewhere. Especially when they come to nothing, right? Pretty much it, you know. So Napoleon rise up like a big star. He came to nothing, just like Hitler and like all the rest of them. And here's the Roman Empire, one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. And uh, they're sitting up there. We know everything. He said, they didn't know this. They didn't know that. They didn't know. And so we speak what was a mystery to the world. They couldn't understand it. A hidden wisdom, something that God brought out. Uh, and he says, verse 8 is important, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He said, even the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, crucified the Lord of glory because they didn't get it. They didn't know. They didn't know what Jesus, what God was doing when he sent his son. They didn't comprehend it, verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man things that God has prepared for them that love him. He said, I hath not seen. Nobody ever saw what was coming. Ear hath not heard. Nobody heard what Jesus was going to accomplish. And they never figured it out on their own. They never would have figured it out. Because it was so much of God's mind. We can't understand God's mind. So Jesus came along and they said, he doesn't fit our pattern. Our pattern for the Messiah is a Jewish king to over, overthrow the Roman Empire. That's what we're looking for. That's what we think we're after. And so he's not it. He's out. Of course, he was it. He was the son of God. And they didn't know. So they crucified him. And Paul says, if they had known, if they had understood that, they wouldn't have crucified him. And, but they didn't, because it never occurred to them. Verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. And so, we have God and his thoughts. God's thoughts. And who understands the thoughts of God? Well, he says the only one is the Spirit of God. 
And we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit understands the thoughts of God. And he says, just think about your own self. We all have somebody inside of us that's secret. You've got a secret somebody inside of you. You have never heard all of what's in my secret heart. I tell you all kinds of stuff. Don't I? <laughs> I never told you what's down deep secret in my heart, because you do the same thing. You've got things inside of you that you keep secret. They're part of your being. The way you think, the way you view things, the way you look at the world, the way you look at people. All right? And he says, every person has a secret inward being that they don't let out. You say, well, some people talk so much, everything they think comes out. Well, <laughs> maybe some more than others. But he says, there's a secret part of every person that's private inside of them that they keep that way. And he says, the only one that knows the deep thoughts of your heart is your own spirit. He says, and of course, it's that way with God. The Holy Spirit is the one that knows the mind of God. All right? It's a secret part of God. What's in there? Well, we're scratching our heads because it's deep things, he calls it. The Spirit is searching through those things of God. And when God wanted to create the world, he made a decision. I'm going to create the world. Jesus is actually going to say, let there be light, and there's light. But the Spirit of God was the understanding that came over creation and said, I understand the mind of God. And it, this is how it happened. So it says that the Spirit of God hovered over creation because the Spirit understands what God wants. Okay? So where does that leave us? Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the word which man's wisdom teaches, but in the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so God shared his secret with us by his spirit. So inside of us, we have secrets. The Holy Spirit is ready to tell us God's secrets. If you look over in John at the Last Supper, John chapter 16, there's a very important verse there. Helps you grasp uh, what he's trying to say to us here. John chapter 16. Verse number 13. This is the Last Supper. Jesus is explaining, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit into the world. Now watch what he says. Verse 13. John 16, verse 13. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He will glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore I said he shall take of mine and show it unto you. So the Holy Spirit is sent into the world to come into our hearts, into our minds, and, and whisper to us, here's what God is thinking. All right? That was his purpose. He said, I'm going to make it clear what Jesus said. The Spirit's going to come into us and make it clear what Jesus said. He's going to help us to understand God. All right? and because we don't naturally do that. And in particular, he says, God's generosity to us. God's been very generous to us. And he wants us to grasp how generous God has been to us. And so it's an important thing that the Spirit of God is able to come into our hearts. You say, well, how does that happen? I kind of like to know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how he works. I know he gets inside of us and he helps us to comprehend. 
And when I'm reading a text sometimes, and all of a sudden, boom. That's what it means. Something I've read a hundred times, probably preached on 20 times. And then all of a sudden it, it occurs to me, and I said, that's the Spirit of God saying, Eric, <clears throat> let me explain that to you. And so you get it. Right? And so the Spirit of God is, is going to do that. And that's a very important thing to grasp. Now, let's go on. We are at verse number 14. All right. Second. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, and he himself is judge of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, do you know all of God's mind? No. But we do have the Spirit in us speaking, helping us to understand Jesus. He said, but there is, and now he's going to give us here a very important bit of information. There is first what he calls the natural man. Natural man. And then he calls it, there's a spiritual man. He puts these on two different planes. The natural man is the man that doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in Jesus, has never asked God to be in his heart, in his life, never been born again, never been saved. All those words that we use to describe having a relationship and an experience with God, he hasn't done those things. He may stand on the outside and say, well, I don't know about that, I'm not sure I want it, but... Uh, uh, <coughs> He can never understand the things that God has. He's not born again, so he has no capacity to grasp the things that come from God. So you can try to explain it to him, never going to get it. Never going to understand it until he finally comes to realize I'm at odds with God. I've done wrong. And I gotta do something about it and then accept Jesus' forgiveness. All right? And now I can begin to see things God's way. Remember this is that God is the ultimate reality. Say, so what's real? Well, there's nothing more real than God. There's nothing more real than God. His presence is in the world. He made it. Your heart beats because he made it. You're breathing because he set you in motion. Your mind is working because he put that in you. So there's nothing more real than God. He's the ultimate reality. And if we stand outside of God and say, oh, I'm going to ignore God. I don't need God. I can run my life. I know what I want. I know what to do. I'm going to ignore God and run my life. What are you ignoring? The ultimate reality. You can't be any more foolish than to ignore ultimate reality. It's like the person who, you know, who walks into the wall and says, that wall's not there. Watch this. Bang. Oh, yeah, it's real. You found out. If you're going to ignore God... That's ignoring the ultimate reality. And so the, the natural man who says, I don't need God, is never going to understand the things about God. He can't grasp it, can't understand it. It just is not in his capacity. The spiritual man, the man who says, God, forgive me, we got to work this out. We got to uh, get together, and I know I did wrong. So I'm going to come and ask for you to help me. Come in my heart. That man is given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into him. And the Holy Spirit's the voice inside of us, instructing us and teaching us, helping us to understand who God is. And certainly the most important thing is to understand that God is, first of all. 
right? He says, by faith, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that believeth must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seeking. First thing you understand that God is real and he's here and we know it. He's here. He's all around us. That's ultimate reality. Think about it. Think about it. I remember when it came to me when I was a young man thinking that God is everywhere. God is here. I couldn't go in Burger King and sit down. I was all excited. He's in here. He's even in Burger King. He's everywhere. And it's a wonderful grasp realize who God is and what he can do. It's an amazing thing. But there are people who can't do that. The spiritual, the Holy Spirit comes in us, says, I'm going to help you to understand who God is. And if you do understand, if you say, I know why he died on the cross, because the Spirit made you understand that. Wasn't your own brilliance. Okay, well, I figured it out myself. No, you didn't. You never would. You could never come to the kind of things that we talked about. I said, Jesus died so we can live. You can come to that. You can come to that. All right. So uh, to ignore God and to say, I can live without God, and you can have your God, but I don't need a God is the ultimate folly in the human race. So we have two people. We got the natural man who can't understand, he says, the things of the spirit. Then we got spiritual people who have created a relationship with God, asked God to come into their life, and now they're beginning to understand. All right? So we say, okay, we got two types of people. Now verse chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Enter a third type of person, a carnal man. He calls him carnal. He's a Christian. He has asked God to come into his heart. He's seen the need for that. But then he stalled out and stopped. So we got the person who can never believe because they ignore God and don't want anything to do with God, so they're never going to grasp it. We got spiritual people that the Holy Spirit came in and is opening their mind, helping them to understand who God is. Now we got somebody in the middle who is carnal. They do believe, but they haven't had any progression. I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual. I can't talk about God the way I'd like to, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. And so, another word for carnal, that's a word that people don't use anymore. Another word for carnal, I would say, would be shallow. People who are shallow, that kind of covers it helps to cover it. They don't get into the business of things. Uh, and it, but I think the word that he's using is childish. They are childish. And I think that describes mostly the carnal Christian. He's childish. The responses are childish. All right? And they don't grow up. He says, I have to talk to you like babes in Christ. Verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. And he says, okay, here's my problem. I wanted to feed you and put a good feast out. Remember we talked Sunday about uh, feeding the flock, right? We feed the flock of God. Peter was told by Jesus, I want you to feed my lambs and feed my sheep. Supposed to feed the flock of God. And he's saying to these people in Corinth, I wanted to feed you. I wanted to put a steak on the table and say, here, eat that. He said, but I got a bottle and you're sucking on a bottle still. And you've been sucking on a bottle the whole time because you don't grow up. You're not growing up. So we understand that there's a responsibility 
for us to grow up. We're expected to grow as Christians. And he said, the problem with you people in Corinth is that you didn't grow up. You are carnal. And here's the proof. Verse 3. You are yet carnal for whereas uh, there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? There's the stinger. There's the stinger. He says, here's proof that you're childish. That you're shallow. You argue and you fight and you divide. It's proof of your carnality. It's proof of your childish behavior. And you are not developing on a spiritual line the way I think you should. And the proof of it is that you can't get along. People are very oftentimes our whole problem, aren't they? Well, this guy's got a bad habit. Okay, that may be his problem. This guy's a drunk. We've got to deal with that. Okay. But for most of us, our problem is people. People? And he says, you're carnal. You're not growing up because you can't handle it. You can't get along. And because of that, he's really nailed them here. He says, you're carnal. Proof of it? You're arguing and fighting. Everything's an argument. Everything's a fight. When are you going to grow up? That's a real shot. All right? It's a real shot that he makes. You You need to grow up and get it. And for verse 4, one saith, I'm of Paul, another I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Yes, you are. So growing up as a a Christian is a necessary part if we're going to understand who God is. We've got to grow up. You can't uh, not do it. All right? People argue and disagree. Why? Because they're not growing up yet. They are childish in their responses. And we've got to learn to do that. He said, you don't eat meat. And you're just fooling around. And so you're shallow and childish in your responses. So now we know that there's three kinds of people, okay? There's the people who ignore God and say, I don't need God. And then there's the people who understand and say, I know God. All right, then there's the people who argue and fight and can't get along. He said, and do they know God? Not very well. Not very well. They have not come along and advanced. And there's where he nails that coffin shut. In the first chapter, he says, you've got to stop arguing. And he says, yeah, right, okay. Second thing, it's your fault. Now he said, it's your fault. It's your lack of growth that's created this. And he said, and so when we find division, when we find argument and strife, and what's the reason for it? Paul said, you're... You're childish. Your responses are childish. You've got to grow up and get it together. And so he's trying to tell them that when they divided up and said, well, I like Paul. No, I like Peter. No, I like Apollos. No, I like Christ. This is not how it works. God's plan, this mastermind of God that revealed the plan is this. Let's take a look. Verse 4 again. For while one says, I'm of Paul, another I am of Apollos, are you not yet carnal? You're childish. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And he says, you're comparing us and arguing over us. We were doing the same thing. I came along to plant a seed. Polish came along and watered the seed. What made the seed grow? God did. The Spirit of God came and the seed grew. All right. And so, verse 7 So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. And so, when people are working together with God, and they're working together, that's the way God intended it. 
intended for people to work together. Paul says, don't look at Paul as one thing and Apollos as a much better speaker than me. You know, it's not how we look at it. We look at it, we're both doing the work of God. We're working together. That's such an essential idea. Uh, I would say to you, uh, my wife is somebody that I value tremendously because since I first said I want to be a pastor, she worked with me. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. And we signed a mortgage. We couldn't pay our own, barely. Signed a mortgage for this church for 30 years. You know, and God paid it off in five. Okay, but we, together, we knew we're on the hook if we do this. We did. We signed it and trusted God. And she's always working with me all the way because that's how it works. You understand? That's how it works. We're working together. We are not picking at each other, fighting over things. That's not what it is. We work together. All right, verse 7, or verse 8. He that planteth, he that watereth are one. Every man shall receive his own word according to his own labor, for we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. So we're working together. We got to get together and work together and stay that way, he said. When they're working together, that was God's plan. God said, remember what he prayed um, uh, in John 17? I pray that they'll be one. I want them to work together. Right. And so the people in Corinth had to learn how to work together, and their childish responses looked at Peter, Paul, and Apollos as separate, like they were working separate. He said, that was a silly way to look at things. We were working together. Yeah, but you were different. Yeah, but we worked together. Yeah, but Apollos preached better. Yeah, yeah. He said, I decided not to preach fancy, but we were working together. We did it together. As that was grown-up spiritual behavior. We worked together. We stayed together. It's an essential thing to understand what he's saying here, that that third type of person, a carnal Christian, is not accomplishing what God wants because they're always dividing, separating, dividing, separating. And God's always saying, come together, come to me. Come together. Come to me. We'll unite together. We'll work together. We got somebody who can do this. Paul, he can explain things. Let him explain them. Paulus can preach a sermon and stand your uh, hair on your neck right up. Good, let him do it. We're all in the same boat, paddling the same way. We got to stay together and work together. And so it's a mark of carnality when somebody says, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm, I'm gone. Mark of carnality. Right? Not the way it was intended to be. So, uh, verse 10, according to the grace, or verse 9, we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. So, we're, we're God's field that he's growing. It's a building that he's laying up each part and each part goes together. According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. So God came and laid a foundation and then he said Paul you're going to be a master builder. You build this church in Corinth. I'm going to do it. And he said, I'm going to tell you what needs to be done. I'm going to tell you how you run a church. And you don't do it by arguing and fighting. Right? You've got to let every man take heed now how he builds. So, growing up as a Christian is not really an option. It's expected that we put away childish behavior, which is I'm mad at you and I don't like you and I'm sick of you. and you know, That's childish behavior. So grow up. Grow up. This is a good medicine. Strong medicine. 
that he's laying down for these people. And I'm sure uh, they kind of, when they heard, you know, somebody stood up front and read this letter. And I'm sure they're sitting there and they're kind of thinking, ooh, <laughs> I'd like to hide now. Because he's talking about me. Let me get out of sight. Yeah, he's talking about you. Because you need to hear that. You need to understand that the problem which you had was divisions because it directly comes to your doorstep. You didn't grow like you were supposed to. So what do you have to do? Well, we got to get in the Bible. Understand it. Understand Jesus. We got to pray. And we got to look at the person sometimes that we think, mm. got to look at him and say, you know, we're going to go through this together. We're going to work it out. We're going to make it happen. That's growing up. So uh, he has stuck with the original problem that he talked about. You know, the question is how do you run a church? But problem number one is you don't do it that way. And here's why it comes out that way. Because spiritual people who are growing up know the mind of God. Now, you're never going to know the whole mind of God, Right? Like the Bible says over and over, did God ask anybody for advice? <laughs> Never did. Never asked you or me. And say, hey, Eric, what do you think? He didn't say that. Never said that to me once. All right? Uh, he said, here's what I think. And let me see if you can get it. And you're never going to understand all the mind of God. But you begin to understand the way things are supposed to run, the way things are supposed to work, because the Spirit of God is talking in your ear. So you need to pray. Praying is a regular thing. We talk to God more. And a lot of people say, well, I don't know what to say. You can say to your husband or your wife, whatever comes into your mind. You can say to uh, the neighbor, whoever, you can talk. You talk to him. Tell him what you're thinking. Sometimes I'm shocked at what I tell him. Sometimes we have a good laugh at what I tell him, you know. And God and I are laughing. So can you imagine that, you know. And I think sometimes uh, I was talking to God the other day, and I started laughing. And I said, you know, somebody's bugging me, God. And I thought, I wonder how many people bug you. <laughs> Whoa. And I laughed. I'm driving through the swamp. I'm laughing. I think, I can't imagine. You don't know what that's about. Okay? So we got to learn. We all got to learn. We all got to grow. Uh, but it's very essential for how to run a church. Very essential that we get that thought together. Say, I'm going to put away my childish arguing ways. And I'm going to learn to get along and cooperate with people. And we go on next week with personal responsibility that comes up for people uh, in the second half of, of uh, chapter 3 and into chapter 4. And I think that the chapter should have been uh, not where it divided. I've told you that before. I think chapter 2 and chapter 3 is all one thought. And so uh, we will take up chapter 3 and a half going into 4. Next week, as we get a little farther in and see what Paul else, what else he says about how do we run a church. Thank you.